Okay, uh, Exodus chapter 31. I want to suggest to you that uh, human beings have very real needs. Personal needs and physical needs. Would you agree? Yes. We have a need for water, for food, where we get hungry, and uh, we have appetites for certain things, and those appetites really drive us, don't they? And when you're hungry, you are hungry. Have you ever noticed when you're fasting, all the cheeseburger commercials are on TV? <laughs> Hunger is a very, very powerful drive, isn't it? But there are personal needs, personal drives that are just as powerful and just as real as those tangible, physical drives, I want to suggest to you that the cry of every human being is that for purpose, meaning, and significance in life. Every human being, to some degree, wants to know they count. It's not our favorite thing to be ignored, is it? People everywhere, at some point or other in their life, ponder questions like these. Who am I? You may not use those words, but the same sentiment. You look in the mirror and you, you're having a bad hair day and you say, who am I? Who are you? What's this, what's this all about? You kind of step back and you, you, you look. You, what am I doing? Why am I here? What purpose do I serve? What's the sense of all this? Am I making a difference? I would suggest that all of us, to some degree, want to make a difference, don't we? I want to know that my life, I didn't just live here in futility, that my life counted for something. And I think that's, that's a drive that's in us. If you go back to the early chapters of Genesis, uh, man, prior to the fall, didn't have these drives. These were, these were qualities that he possessed. He was significant. He was perfect. Only after the fall, when sin degraded his nature, our nature, then do we notice these uh, areas of, uh, of, of need, if you will. And they are pronounced. Far too often, these questions that we ponder are answered by feelings of frustration, Feelings of emptiness, a sense maybe of helplessness or disappointment, depression, even in some cases despair. There are people who, and even in the Christian community, there are people who experience these kinds of feelings. They feel all alone. They feel in a very, very real sense, helpless, if not hopeless. People today will find themselves trapped in an endless cycle of futility and or emptiness. They're on this treadmill, it seems like, not making any progress. It's same old, same old, day after day. And, and you can get weary of that, can't you, pretty quickly. We want to change. We want something different. I want some excitement in my life. I, I, I'm craving something that would make my life more substantial, more significant, make me feel better. We live a life where, in this world, nothing really lasts. Isn't that true? The older you get, the more you realize things are transitory. You begin to wonder about the more substantial things of life. What are they? And they are really spiritual things, not temporal things. Many people live 
a life, and tragically, in far too many lives, when the winds of time blow across their graves, nothing lasting will be found. No real, genuine heritage. What did they pass on? I had word this week that a man who was part of our church for years and years and years, he and his wife had moved away about 10 years ago to Temecula area. And uh, some of you knew Bob Porter, Bob and Barbara Porter. Bob passed away last week, age of 88. But that man lived a substantial life, let me tell you. He was a spiritual man. And he passed on a terrific heritage uh, to those hundreds of people who, whose lives he touched. I was talking with his wife, Barbara, on the phone this, like, this week, and she was just recounting to me the just endless, endless uh, testimony of, about his life, about the man that he was, and the immense hole that's left in her life by his absence. So here's a man who, when we ponder his heritage, and certainly those of us who knew him, uh, can say, I was proud to know Bob Porter. I was proud to know this man. He marked my life in very significant ways. He left a heritage. His life was significant. But though there are many, many, many people today who can't say that, this is not so for the Christian believer. At least it should not be so. For the believer who follows God. There are a lot of people in churches today, professing Christians, whose lives are just empty. Because, if the truth be known, they're Christians in name only. They know not what it means to follow hard after God. To seek Him with all their heart. To love Him with all their heart. It's a Christian who takes God's Word seriously, who takes his charges seriously, applies them to his life, follows hard after God, obeys God. This is the Christian whose life is substantial, whose life is significant, and who leaves a terrific, terrific heritage. You see, because it is the the very Word of God, it is the, the commands of God, it is the charges of God, and obedience to those charges that brings about purpose, meaning, and significance into a life. Apart from God, there's nothing. You can say all day long, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus. But unless you're following hard after Him, uh, you're still going to find yourself spinning your wheels frustrated, empty, God's great charges stir us. They stir us to serve Him. And when we serve God, beloved, that is when we experience a deep, rich fulfillment. That which we hunger for. When we serve God, He gives us a deep sense of satisfaction. He gives us a sense of completion. When we serve God, He gives us a deep sense of purpose, meaning, and significance. There isn't a single one of us that, that doesn't understand this, this, this hunger in our life and try to find it fulfilled in the things that this world offers. Isn't that true? My job. I, I want to, you know, you go to school, you study hard, you become a thus and such. And, and then all of a sudden you find out, well, it's not what I thought. If I just purchased or had this or a bigger thus, and then you get it. It doesn't do it for me. I had my heart set on... Am I making sense? You see, it's when we serve God that He gives us a deep sense of assurance, a deep sense of security, a deep sense of being His, of being loved by Him, and the confidence of living with Him for eternity. 
And it's not just some distant theological principle or truth that I believe in. It's that God makes that alive and dynamic and real in my life. It's like you you know when you're loved. Isn't that true? I mean, I know my wife loves me. I know that her love is deep and abiding. I know that her loyalty to me is without question. My wife would take a bullet for me. And and that's not just a saying, that's not a joke. She is incredibly passionate for me. I know that. No one even has to tell me that. It's the same thing when when you know God and you're walking with God. You know His love. You know His passion for you. And at that point... It doesn't matter if you have a million dollars. It doesn't matter if you have the newest gizmo. It doesn't matter if you're not famous. All that begins to pale in comparison to what he does in your life and how he fills up your life. But it's a function of relationship like everything else. Am I seeking him, really? When I read my Bible daily, am I just reading to get the quote out because I know Pastor Zach's going to ask me? Or am I reading because I really want to know his heart? I want to know his mind. I want to know how God thinks. I want to know what his word tells me. I want to read it. I want to meditate on it. I want to know it. I want to love it. So it can mark my life. So I can bring greater glory. See, our relationship with God is a dynamic thing. It's not a static thing. It's an alive thing. And you and I as believers should be experiencing that. And this is the picture we find in chapter 31. Just read it with me. And then the Lord said to Moses... See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with skills, ability, and knowledge, and all kinds of crafts to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. Moreover, I have appointed Oholiab, son of Ahismach, in the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I have given skill to all the craftsmen to make everything I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the atonement cover on it, all the other furnishings of the tent, the table, its articles, the pure gold lampstand, all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, all its utensils, the basin with its stand, and also the woven garments, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests and the anointing oil, fragrant incense for the holy place. They are to make them just as I commanded you. And then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, You must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come, so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Whoever does any work on that day must be cut off from his people. For six days work is to be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day must be put to death. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he abstained from work and rested. And when the Lord finished speaking to Moses on the Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. In chapter 31, there are three charges that God gives. I want to draw these charges out, apply them to our own lives. The first was the charge to build the tabernacle, the first 11 verses. The second charge was to keep the Sabbath, verses 12 through 17. The third and last charge that God gave was to keep the Ten Commandments, verse 18. Let's look at the first one. We've reached a place in the 
book of Exodus, where God has completed all the instructions for the design and the construction of the tabernacle. In the succeeding chapters, all those instructions will be fulfilled. The implements, the furnishings, the tabernacle itself will all be constructed. So after God has given all the design and the instructions, he appoints a construction superintendent. This is the story of what happens when God calls a man or woman to serve him. Much to learn from Bezalel. God calls as the chief builder a man by the name of Bezalel. Bezalel, like all of the Israelites, was born in slavery in Egypt, raised as a slave. And as he was raised, presumably, because he is so skilled, presumably he had uh, been a slave to various Egyptian craftsmen where he learned all these crafts. His name meant under the shadow of God. Under the shadow of God. Presumably under God's protection and guidance. God had been protecting Bezalel. He had been guiding Bezalel throughout his life as an Egyptian slave. Making sure that he learned the skills necessary that would be used to construct the tabernacle. The point to see, I think, is that God himself actually chose and appointed this man who was to serve him as the superintendent over the tabernacle project. The Hebrew actually says, if you go back to uh, verse 2, the, the NIV translation doesn't make it quite so clear, but in the Hebrew text it actually says, God called him by name. God knew Bezalel. God knew him personally. God knew his name. Called him by name. Beloved, when God calls a person to service, it's always a personal call. God always calls by name. He doesn't say, oh, um, what's your face over there? He knows you by name. He calls us by name. Isn't that marvelous? God knew Bezalel was his man for the job. He knew it before the foundation of the world. Before anything was ever created. God knew Bezalel even while he was still in his mother's womb. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, knew Bezalel personally. And beloved, he knows each one of us personally. He knows us so intimately, he knows us better than we know ourselves. That's a scary thought, isn't it? (laughs) The call of God is not some impersonal, bureaucratic, anonymous, faceless thing. The call of God goes right to the heart of the person called setting that person apart to serve. Again, the call of God is a personal call. Growing up, I I always had a sense, although I couldn't identify it and phrase it this way, I couldn't articulate it this way, but growing up, I always had a sense that I I believe in God, but that, that somehow God had his hand on me. And I couldn't, identify it in any particular way of the fact that I just had this sense. And throughout my life, it has proven true. I, I should not be here. I should be dead. I have put my life at risk a number of times in my foolishness. And there were times when I should have been shot. There were times when I should have died in an accident. But I've come through each one of those events. And, and I, I just marked them. And I unscathed. And I didn't even thank God for those things. I was just a rank pagan, skating, presuming, living this life that seemed to be blessed, if you will. 
And it was only after I became a Christian that I began to understand some things that I'd never understood before. This was God. And there was, a, there was a certain purpose, a certain destiny that he had for me. I couldn't even tell you what it was. But I knew that he knew. When I went to seminary, it was not because I wanted to be a pastor. I went to seminary, many of you heard my testimony, because I came to become a Christian years after many other people. And I'd come to this church and all these people knew the Bible and I thought. And so I wanted to learn the Bible in the quickest time I could, so the only way I could do that was accelerate this thing and go to seminary. And I knew as soon as I could finish school, finish all my schooling, I could, I could come out and, and be a good standing member of the church, and I could get back into my Amway business. <laughs> I had my wife already sold on the products, But God had other plans. If you'd have told me 30 years ago I'd be a pastor, I'd have just absolutely laughed. But here I are. God calls. God Chooses. God knows from before the foundation of the world what he's going to do with my life, and the same with your life. It's a personal call because it's a personal relationship. I love David's words in Psalm 139, familiar passage to many. Just look with me, the first five verses. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. I read those words and I think, yes, I understand that. I understand that. That's applicable to all of us. If you turn the page, you look, begin verse 13. He says, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. That just take your breath away? It's a, just a picture of how intimately he knows us. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1, the prophet is speaking to the nation of Israel, but you could just as well be speaking to us, the Lord. But now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, you can slide your name in there, O Dave Tibbles. He who formed you, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Wow. Doesn't that just send chills? This is the God of the universe. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Say, well, that was a Jeremiah. No, it's true of all of us. We saw that in David's psalm. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Each one of us have been appointed to some role in the construction of the tabernacle of God, the church of God. You may not be a prophet, but you've been given some call. You've been given some appointment. You've been given some gift. God knows you. He made you for that purpose. He didn't make you just to go off and do your own thing. 
oblivious to his purpose and plan. The context is the charge to build the tabernacle. We have the same charge is to what? See the church of God built up. John chapter 15, verse 16. Jesus said to his disciples, he says, uh, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and what? Bear fruit. You say, well, that was just his disciples. No, we are his disciples. He's chosen you. He's chosen me. He's appointed us to go bear fruit. He says, fruit that will last. I want that which is the product of my life to have some lasting value, don't you? Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Paul writes this, For those God foreknew... What's that mean? He means he, he knew us before. He knew us before what? Before we were made, before the heavens and the earth were For those God foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. What does it mean to be conformed to the likeness of his Son? Does we just look like Jesus? No, that we bear all the characteristics of the life of Jesus. Last week, we talked about, in, after, in chapter 30, we talked about four kinds of characteristics. What were they? Anybody remember? I know, last week was a long time ago. Anybody remember it all? Be a giving person. Morally pure person. person of service. And a person of prayer. Would you say those things would characterize Jesus? Is God forming that, shaping that in us? But it requires what? Our participation, doesn't it? Our willing surrender, our willingness to walk in those things that he's doing in our life. If I want to shape your life, I'm going to give you some direction and some instruction. I'm going to do my very best to input into your life, but it requires that you cooperate and you follow the the shaping. Verse 30, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What a marvelous passage. Point is, is that God has called us. He's called us. He knows us. Notice in verse 2 that uh, Bezalel's heritage is given. I think this is significant. Three things suggest that Bezalel had a godly heritage. First of all, his father's name was Uri, which meant light. And it could be a reference to the light of knowledge, the light of understanding, the light of wisdom, the light of God. just simply meant light. Now, being descendants of Abraham, these people knew about God's promises. God's promises of a land, God's promises of a heritage, God's promises of a seed. It would be a blessing to all the nations. They knew about those. It is possible that Uri was given his name because of that hope, the hope of the light and the promises of God. In those days particularly, and in some some degree our our time, but in, in those days particularly, children were named... Because of a heritage. They were named with, because of a vision or a promise or something about their relationship with God. And in Uri would be no different. A lot of times people today pick names for their kids because it's a cute name. What do, we, what do I name, name my, my son? I name him Harry. That's a good name. I would name Tui. What does Tui mean? King. King. Oh, that's right. I knew that. <laughs> and there are, there are lots of people today, lots of Christians especially, who, who when they have children, they name them, they give them these names that are just marvelous, that speak of a heritage. Oh, it's a bar. Aspire to this heritage. This is true of Israel. 
Bezalel's grandfather's name was Hur. Hur means free. This could have referred to the hope of being free from slavery in Egypt. Being free to inherit all those marvelous promises of God that they knew about. Further, Bezalel was also of the tribe of Judah. Judah means praise, referring to the praise due God. Judah, if you know, was the largest of all the twelve tribes, and Judah always, always led the way when the tabernacle was moved from encampment to encampment. Powerful statement. Took, they took the lead. It's, it's like the singers go ahead of the army. God is praised. So it's a marvelous heritage. A godly heritage can never be overstressed. Would you agree? A godly heritage. Children, adults alike need godly parents and godly grandparents. We all need a godly heritage. Those of us who are parents today, we need to build a godly heritage for our kids, for our sons and our daughters. Because in doing so, we're building a heritage for our society and ultimately the world, are we not? We're passing on truth. We're passing on rich principles. We're passing on a vision to the next generation. This is why discipleship is so important. You, you bring younger men and women uh, into the kingdom and you teach them a disciple and you pass on a heritage, a godly heritage to others who heretofore have not had that. Verse 3 tells us that the equipping of Bezalel was by the Holy Spirit. He was filled with God's Spirit. When God calls a person to service, that person is not left by himself to do the work. Isn't that good news? Well, I don't know if I'm up to it. You're not up to it. (laughs) If God's called you, He'll prepare you. He'll equip you. He'll use all the things in your background, like He did with Bezalel, all of His training, all the skills, all the craftsmen uh, insights and knowledge He gained, and now He's going to fill Him with His Spirit. He's going to sanctify those abilities and talents, and He's going to use them for the construction of the tabernacle. And all the complexity... And all the beauty of all the furnishings and the things that we'd read about and studied. No, God fills his man, his woman, with his spirit, empowers that person. If you look over in chapter 12 of the book of Romans, there's a statement about spiritual gifts and equipping. Paul talks about the grace given each one of us by the Holy Spirit of God. Sometimes we we look at the work and we say, I don't don't know if I can do that. Uh, You can't. You can't do it. It's, it's, It's the hardest thing in the world, if not impossible, without the Spirit and the power of God. Being a Christian, living a Christian life, serving God, is absolutely one of the most frustrating things to do if you try to do it in your own strength. How many found that to be true? You just, it just kills you. It wears you out. You get burned out. We always hear this expression, I'm burned out, I'm burned out. Well, there's a difference between burned out and being tired. It's natural to get tired. Jesus got tired, he never got burned out. Why? Because he was continually filled with the Spirit. So you and I, as we, as we realize that God has called us, and if we take a step of faith and trust that he will fill me with his Spirit to empower me to do things he's called me to do, I won't get burned out. Isn't that exciting? By the way, I forgot to mention, as kind of an aside, just hold that for a second. We have a leadership meeting this afternoon. And if you're a part of the leadership team, uh, I need you there because I have important things to talk to you about today, okay? All right, let's go back here. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about spiritual gifts. As in Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12 uh, makes the analogy, uh, uses the, the, this metaphor of a body, talking about the body of Christ, the church. And every part is important. God has called, designed every single one of us to fit in to his body. We all are necessary. What's your gifting? 
Pastor Bruce is going to be teaching uh, the class beginning this, uh, I think this next month on uh, Discover Your Ministry. If you haven't been in the class, help you discover your gift and how those gifts translate into ministry. What has God actually called me to? Where do I fit? If you want your life to count, if you want to have some sense of, of substance and significance and lasting worth to your life, you've got to know where you fit. You can't just come and sit in church and that's it. Or just go to mini church and, you know, well, I, I go to mini church. But what do you do? What do you contribute? If I've heard this once, I've heard it way too many times. Well, I went to mini church, but I didn't get anything out of it. You don't go to get something out of it. You go to contribute. You're a part of the body. You bring something that the other people need. And only when you give do you... Very good. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about, again, the gifts that God has given to the church. More particularly, the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. These have been given so that 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 the body, the church, can be built up equipped for service for the kingdom of God. So again, this picture of Bezalel and Oholiab building up and being superintendents of the, of, the, of the temple is a picture of you and I as serving the Lord and doing what he's called us to do, something that will be lasting and significant of worth doing. Bezalel's helper, verse 6. The assistant superintendent, if you will. Aholiab. His name means either tent of the father or the father is my tent. Again, suggestion, uh, suggesting that maybe God had been covering, protecting, looking after him just as he had Bezalel. God had been preparing him for future service. God is, you have to look at your life. God's been preparing me. He's been preparing me. He's been preparing me. I mean, I look back at my Amway career, and I see clearly how God used that as, to teach me as to be a pastor. Talk about small groups. <laughs> Talk about evangelism, recruiting, <laughs> prospecting. Selling soap. Cleanliness, purity, holiness. <laughs> it all fits. I, I just thank God you have a tremendous sense of humor. Aholiab was from the tribe of Dan, verse 6 tells us. If you know anything about the tribe of Dan, they were characterized as a fierce, warlike people. You would not expect someone from the tribe of Dan to be an artiste. An artiste. But here is one. In Second Chronicles chapter 2, we read about Hiram. Hiram was the chief craftsman for all the work on Solomon's temple. He was also from the tribe of Dan. Both Ohileb and Hiram, as artistes, seemed to go against the grain of their heritage. They stand out as artists who can be used mildly of God. The point, I think, is this. You see this contrast. Bezalel had this godly upbringing, this godly heritage. Hylab had the opposite. Anything but. Both Ohilab and Hiram show that a person can, in fact, go against the grain of his heritage and stand out as a strong, gifted servant of God. Well, you don't know my background. You don't know how I was raised. It doesn't matter how you were raised. When God comes into your life, He changes you. He doesn't just rehab you. He changes you. He makes you a new you. And He's promised to use all that stuff, overrule it, for your good and His glory. So no excuses. Whether you come from a a godly, strong background or not such a strong background, God has tapped you, called you. He wants to use you. Just say, yes, Lord, here I am. 
Say that with me. Yes, Lord, here I am. God, I want, to, I want my life to count in the building of your tabernacle and your service. And my life's only going to count if it's in your service. Amen? Does that make sense to you? Verses 6 to 11, we read about the other craftsmen also equipped by God, given skill to make everything. They were appointed, other craftsmen now were appointed to work under the direct supervision of Bezalel and Aholiab. The building of the tabernacle was to be Israel's most important construction project. Therefore, it would take workmen who were willing to follow the leadership of these two men that God had appointed. When God's people come together and work, it must be, one, according to God's design, and two, in a spirit of unity. As we are serving the Lord in this local congregation, it must be that we, that we are in agreement, that we are of one accord, that we are one mind and one heart. If the church is to be built... Verse 11 tells us that God left nothing to chance. Everything was to be made just as he commanded. God had called together a group of craftsmen who had to place their own pride, their own egos, their own agendas, their own issues, place all these things aside and do things God's way. Sometimes we think, I have a better idea. No, let's do it God's way. Let's always do it God's way. The blueprint was complete. The plans were complete. Any changes, any additions, any deletions from God's plans were absolutely forbidden. God did not call these men into service simply for their own wisdom, their own worldly ingenuity. He called them to do exactly what he called them to do and prepared them to do. To build the tabernacle according to the plan, according to the design that he had given to Moses. Life is like that. God has given a design, hasn't he? God has given a design for a person, how a person is to be saved. Isn't that true? How is a person to be saved? How is a person to be saved? By grace, through Faith in Jesus Christ. That's the design. That's the pattern. That's the way. That's the only way. It's by grace, God's graciousness, through faith in Jesus Christ to all, because all have sinned. Yeah, but, yeah, but sure. There have to, it can't be quite so narrow. There have to be other ways. There have to be other roads. I mean, after all, we've got all these, these sincere people who love the world. That These Buddhists, they love people. They're people of peace. All these Hindus and, and the, the Muslims certainly are people of peace. What about all these sincere people? You mean they're not going to be saved? God's given a design. Broad is the way to destruction. Narrow the way to life. Few who find it. God has given a design. He's given a design for how He is to be worshipped. How is God to be worshipped? Just any old way? Huh? Reverend awe. In spirit and truth, John chapter 4, verse 24, they that worship me was worship in spirit and truth. We're to worship him with our entire life, everything that we are, submission. Has God given a design for the building of his church? Absolutely. Absolutely. Beloved, we are simply to do just as he says. This is called, what? What's this called? The Manufacturer's Handbook. You know the old saying, before all else fails, read the instructions. Right? 
You ever try to make something, you know, and they get your instructions, yeah, I don't need to read this, I'll just put it together. Then later on you go, man, this thing's hard. Better go read the instructions. I got a new cell phone yesterday. I'm waiting for my son to get home. We are to do just exactly what he says. We must not try to add to nor take away from his word, and yet many people do. Many people add their own reasoning, their own common sense, whatever that is. They add their human logic, their human rationalizations. They end up either questioning the word of God or questioning the goodness and the purpose of God. And beloved, when you question the word of God, and you question the goodness and the purpose of God, you have just sinned grievously against God. How many parents like to be questioned by their kids? Why should I do that? Oh... My wife has a sign in our house. Michael was growing up. It says, because I'm the mother. <laughs> Isn't that great? She got it at a garage sale. I thought it was cute. <laughs> Question. Does God really want me to forgive someone who has hurt me deeply? And caused me great pain and suffering. Does God really want me to forgive that person? Ow! How many times they keep hurting me? How many times should I forgive them? No limit. Unbelievable. That's your design, God? Yeah. It doesn't make sense. I don't care. To you, you'll learn if you just obey me. Somewhere down the road, it's going to make sense. Somewhere down the road, you go, oh, duh, I think I'm getting it now. The older my son gets, the smarter I am. <laughs> Is Jesus Christ really the only true way to heaven? People question that. Does God really want me to deny myself, deny my rights, deny my own ideas and my own personal agenda? Does God really want my money? Does God really mean what he says? Are his commandments, his word, really important? You see, we call into question what he tells us. We, we don't want to give over to it. But, beloved, in the building of the tabernacle, it's imperative that we follow his design. You want your life to count? You want your life to have meaning and substance? You want to pass on a heritage to those around you, especially your kids, if you have any? The second charge he gives us is to keep the Sabbath. It's possible, if you, if you take into account the context of our passage, it's possible that the building of the tabernacle would be met with such great excitement uh, that no doubt the people were, were just willing to work 24-7. Oh, the anticipation. Build a tabernacle. But note God's command to Moses. They were to keep the Sabbath. Why did God require his people to slow down the production schedule in order to keep the Sabbath? Important. They were to keep the Sabbath because, first of all, God says it was a sign of the covenant between he and they. 
A sign that declares the very special relationship between God and those who follow him and obey him. It's a special relationship. And this special relationship must not be taken for granted. That's the point of the Sabbath. It's a special relationship. It's not to be taken for granted. It is to be rather cultivated and treasured. Would you agree with me that our relationships, especially those special ones, are to be cultivated, treasured? We seem to fall so far short, don't we? If we fall short just in our temporal relationships, what does that say about our relationship with the one who loves us more than anybody? The Sabbath also reminds us that God is the Lord. Significant. The only living and true God who makes us holy, who sets us apart to be his people and to live pure and righteous lives. By keeping the Sabbath, it would be an important reminder that the one who revealed the design for the tabernacle was the one who was to be worshipped and loved. He's the Lord. Oh yeah, Sabbath. Oh yeah, Sabbath. Verse 14, God gives a special warning to keep the Sabbath holy. It was to be set apart as a very special day, as a day belonging to God and man. A day for the remembrance of God, a day for the worship of God, and for the rest and relaxation of man. It was a day for God and a day for man. Sabbath is holy, special, set apart. Now, we, we don't celebrate legalistically a Sabbath as did Israel, as they were called to do. But we, we remember the principle of Sabbath. We are to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. We're to remember him. We come to the communion table regularly, uh, these kinds of things. Uh, but we are also to take some time, and, and most notably, at least a day, a day to just kind of rest. We need to rest. But it's a day also to remember him. Because that sets a kind of a tone for our life for the rest of our week. You come out of church and hopefully uh, you spend the day uh, resting. You spend the day uh, in prayer. You spend the day remembering God, thanking him and so forth. That ought to have an effect on the rest of your week, should it? Notice the penalty for violating the Sabbath. What's the penalty? Is God serious about the Sabbath? Yeah. He's serious about it. Why? Because it's holy. This is important to him. And it ought to be important to us. God, who lives outside of time and space, knows several facts. One, he knows that man needs both work and rest. How many know that you need to work? I need to be productive. You may not like going to work. But you need to do it. We all like a vacation, time off, that's wonderful. But pretty soon you get antsy, you want to get back. He knows we need work, but he also knows that we need, and we absolutely need, rest. To work six days a week, but to rest on the Sabbath. God knows that man needs both work and worship. That we need to sense our purpose and meaning in our life and in our work, and that purpose and meaning are found only in God. In knowing that one is working for, living for a higher cause rather than just for what this world offers. My life, my work, expression of worship. Because why? It's, it's Lord, for your glory. I'm a whatever as unto the Lord. I'm an accountant as unto the Lord, right? I'm an an attorney as unto the Lord. I'm a a physician as unto the Lord. I'm a teacher as unto the Lord. God, I'm doing this. I want you to be glorified in my work. It's nice to keep that perspective, isn't it? Man needs to know that he serves the Lord God himself and that he is going to be rewarded one day. 
Is it legitimate to work for rewards? Absolutely. We do it every day. Paycheck. There are going to be rewards, eternal rewards. It's nice to be altruistic, but the reality is, is there's going to be rewards. I want a pile of them, don't you? God also knows that his people will most likely obey the other areas of his commands if they keep the Sabbath. If the Sabbath is not kept, his people will most likely break his other laws. And in so doing, their whole society would crumble. No society can survive for very long apart from God. You can see our culture and our society. Ominous signs. Some say that we are beyond Repair, if you will. We've gone past the point of no return. Others are not so pessimistic. Others are hopeful. I keep praying for revival. God, give us one more season of revival before you come back. All of Europe is decimated. Europe, the the cradle out of which our nation obviously was born, Missionaries, noted missionaries, would come from Europe. Europe is dead spiritually. There are pockets of revival, but by and large, it's dead. Europe's being taken over by the godless, by the pagan. Some quarters, it's being taken over by Islam. Ripe. The shadow of Islam, I think, is, is, is over our nation right now. We're not passing on to our children uh, a, a, a heritage of servanthood. We're passing on to our children a heritage of spectatorship. We're teaching them to be spectators, not servants. And spectators just sit back and watch while everything is taken over by others who are more aggressive, more committed. Significant. Sabbath is important. It's a day to remember. A day to set back, a day to evaluate, a day to think, a day to to review, a day to worship, a day to rest. It's holy to God, it's holy for us. The Sabbath was made for all generations of men. It stretches from the creation to the end of the world, covering all people of all generations. Everyone needs to acknowledge God. Everyone needs to rest. Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the seas and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Jesus commenting on the Sabbath in Mark chapter 2 says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So it's not just a legalistic prescription we have to keep. No, we have to say, this is a gift to us from God. It serves great purpose in our life. We dare not overlook it. We dare not overlook it. And the third charge that God gave was to keep his commandments. Verse 18, it seems like kind of a summary statement, an afterthought, a postscript, if you will. But really, I, I want us to look at it as a, as a third charge. The commandments are a great gift to mankind from God, are they not? They're priceless. I like how this is written here. This is they were written by the finger of God. The mention of the tablets of the law at this point of the tabernacle instructions, I think, is a graphic reminder. Note this, please. That God cannot be worshipped. What was the tabernacle all about? It was about worship. That the tabernacle cannot be worshipped if God's law, if God's word is not close at hand. This is why the tablets of law would be placed in the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant. You can't worship God if you don't know His word, if you don't know the truth. You worship in ignorance. And ignorant worship is not true worship. It's by God's word that we know what a righteous and pure life is all about. A life that glorifies God. A life that indeed bears witness 
to other people that there is a God who loves and cares for His creation, a God who saves people, who leads people to the promised land of heaven. Beloved, without His Word, without His Word, we are directionless. And our worship is empty and meaningless. Three charges God gives. You and I hunger for meaning. We hunger for purpose. We hunger for a sense of significance. And these very real personal needs can only be met by God as we walk in His design, as we give ourselves to the work that He's called us to, more particularly to the building up of His church, as we worship Him with our lives, as we take time to rest, and as we obey His word. To ignore those charges, to ignore those charges, is to live your life in frustration and futility. And I know none of us wants to live that way. Amen? Father, we just love you this morning. We praise your name. We thank you again for your instruction. We thank you for your love. We thank you... For your purpose and your will, Lord, open our eyes, our minds, our hearts to what your will is for each life, that we be more and more given to your design, to your purpose. Lord, as we do, as we submit and surrender to you, we walk in your way after your spirit, empowered by your spirit, Lord, our lives will be full and rich, rewarding. We will have a heritage to pass on. Lord, lead us in how we should go. For your glory, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. 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 Turn to your neighbor, give him a big hug, encourage him right now. Let's stand and let's praise God before we...